Hello and welcome back to Endopod. If you're new here, hi, my name is Regina Sumarli and I am a third-year medical student. We are excited to be back after our winter break. We are bringing you a brand new oncology slash cancer series. We will be covering endocrinological cancers and to start off, we are going to be looking at pituitary tumors. We are going to discuss what it is, its classifications, presentation, diagnosis, and treatments. So let's get started. Tumors of the pituitary gland are almost always benign and are usually curable. However, they can still cause problems by excessive hormone production, local effects of the tumor, and inadequate hormone production by the remaining pituitary gland. Pituitary tumors may also be associated with multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1, which is a rare hereditary endocrine cancer syndrome characterized by tumors of the parathyroid glands, endocrine gastroenteropancreatic tract, and anterior pituitary, as an example, prolactinomas. Pituitary tumors, or adenoma, account for 15% of primary intracranial tumors, and there are approximately 80 cases per 100,000 individuals. The peak age of patients range from those near 30s to their 60s. We can classify pituitary tumors based on their size and staining characteristics. However, those classifications have now been replaced by a more functional classification that involves electromicroscopy and immunochemistry. This is because classifying the tumors based on size and staining has proven to be of no clinical value. We will touch a bit about the previous classification before discussing those that are used now. So, based on size, we can classify pituitary tumors as macroadenomas and microadenomas. Microadenomas are those that have a diameter of less than 1 cm, and macroadenomas are those that have a diameter larger than 1 cm. Based on staining characteristics, they can be classified as chromophobe and chromophilic tumors. True to their names, Chromophobic does not take up stains and chromophilic does. Now that we have discussed a bit about their previous classification, let us now focus on the current classification using immunohistochemistry and electromicroscopy. These techniques have identified hormonal production in many chromophobe adenomas, enabling pathologists to identify the hormones produced. They also found out that many tumors produce more than one hormone. Scientists can now histologically determine the mutated form of P53, which suggests a rapidly growing tumor. This is quite important because the endocrinologic morbidity that is associated with pituitary tumors is dependent on the specific underproduction or overproduction of a hormone or hormones associated with the tumor. Based on their ability to secrete hormones, Pituitary adenomas can either be classified as non-secretory pituitary adenomas or secretory pituitary adenomas. Non-secretory adenomas account for 15 to 45% of all pituitary adenomas. The less common type, the secretory pituitary adenomas, can usually lead to hyperpituitarism, which will showcase varying symptoms of its own. Knowing how we can classify the tumor is not enough. We also need to be aware of how it can present. 
The fact that these tumors can produce more than one hormone means that presentation may differ significantly between individuals suffering from the condition. Patients can present with growth hormone deficiency, gonadotrophin deficiency, thyrotrophin deficiency, corticotrophin deficiency, and panhypopituitarism. Let's go through this one by one. First is growth hormone deficiency. Adults can present with increased rate of cardiovascular disease, obesity, reduced muscle strength and exercise capacity, and increased cholesterol. Infants can present with hypoglycemia. Children can present decreased height and growth rate. Next is gonadotrophin deficiency. These can present differently in men and women. In men, they can present with diminished libido and impotence as well as shrinking testes but with normal sperm production. Women can present with diminished libido and dyspareunia, which is when someone experiences pain during or after intercourse. In chronic insufficiency, women can present with breast atrophy. Children can present with delayed or frank absence of puberty. Next, we have thyrotrophin deficiency. So this would present in the same way as hypothyroidism. Patient can present with malaise, weight gain, lack of energy, cold intolerance, and constipation. Patient can also present with corticotrophin deficiency. In this case, there will be deficiency of glucocorticoids and adrenal androgens. Initially, symptoms tend to be nonspecific. Severe adrenal insufficiency may present as a medical emergency. The last but not the least is panhypopituitarism. Patient can present with deficiency of several anterior pituitary hormones. This may occur in a slowly progressive fashion. Just now, we talk about deficiencies, but as we know, these pituitary tumors can also present with overproduction of various hormones including prolactin, growth hormone, and cortisol. Let's go through them one by one. In prolactin overproduction, patients present with hypogonadism if hyperprolactinemia is sustained. Women can present with amenorrhea, galactoria, and infertility, whereas men can present with decreased libido impotence, and rarely galactoria. Next is growth hormone overproduction. Adults can present with acromegaly, so they might come with enlarging hands and feet, coarse facial features, frontal bossing and prognatism. Further changes in the voice and hirsutism can confirm the diagnosis. Respiratory difficulty and sleep apnea are fairly common. They can also present with things like cardiac complications due to acromegalic cardiomyopathy, carpal tunnel syndrome, and various other symptoms associated with acromegaly. The last but not the least is cortisol overproduction, which can lead to Cushing's disease. Hence, patients will present with weight gain, centripetal obesity, moon facies, violet triae, easy bruciability, proximal myopathy, and psychiatric changes. Other possible effects include arterial hypertension, diabetes,
cataracts, glaucoma, and osteoporosis. So how do we diagnose this condition? Well, aside from thorough history and examinations, we can also utilize investigations to help confirm diagnosis. So how do we choose the right investigations? Well, it will depend on the symptoms that the patient presents with. So firstly, we will go through what type of investigations we should do for an asymptomatic patient, so those who does not have any symptoms. Then, we will go over investigations used if we suspect underlying pathologies. For asymptomatic patients, we want to screen for hormonal abnormalities. Hence, we measure basal serum prolactin levels, thyroid function test or TFTs, 24-hour urine cortisol, insulin-like growth factor 1 or IGF-1, LH or the luteinizing hormone, as well as FSH or the follicle-stimulating hormone, and also testosterone in men, and estradiol in women. What you want to do is endocrine studies for hormone hyposecretion and hypersecretion. Serum prolactin levels should be measured in any patient with a suspected cellar or supracellar mass. This is to check for prolactinoma. If you suspect acromegaly, we would measure IV growth hormone levels, serum IGF-1, or oral glucose tolerance test can be done. This is to check for growth hormone levels. Checking cortisol level, if we suspect hypercortisolism, it can also be done. Using 24-hour urine for free cortisol, dexamethasone suppression test, standard low-dose dexamethasone, high-dose dexamethasone suppression, methyropone test, serum ACTH, and at times we can use venous sampling of ACTH. Checking for glycoprotein hormones such as TSH, FSH, LH levels if we suspect any imbalance of those hormones. Aside from those tests, imaging for any mass or lesions also can be done. Lateral skull x-ray may incidentally show enlargement of the fossa, but this is not definitive. MRI scan is the preferred imaging investigation and superior to CT scanning. Next, we can check for visual field. Common defects are upper temporal quadratanopia and bitemporal hemianopia. Now that we have covered quite a bit about P23 tumors or P23 adenoma, let's take a look at how to treat this condition. How do we approach patients? Well, first, we would like to assess patients for any life-threatening and side-threatening complications. We should stabilize patients with acute hormonal imbalances and refer patients with severe vision loss or altered mental state to neurosurgery urgently. All patients should be referred to endocrinology and the choice of treatment will be based on the tumor type, size, and presence of symptoms. Initial treatment options include surgery, pharmacotherapy, and observation. For those with prolactinomas, the first-line treatment is pharmacotherapy including hormone suppression. The choice of medication depends on the cause of the patient's symptoms. For those with secretory adenoma, except for prolactinoma, or those with symptomatic non-secretory adenoma, the first-line therapy is surgery. Then for those with asymptomatic macroprolactinoma, or asymptomatic non-secretory adenomas, we tend to wait and see how it progresses. And then we have refractory tumors. 
which are those that are persistently symptomatic due to hormone production or tumors that are still causing symptoms of mass effect despite previous management steps. We can consider repeat transphenoidal hypophysectomy, medical management, and or pituitary irradiation. It is important to achieve initial stabilization before starting definitive management. Patients may be actually unwell, secondary to hormonal alterations, and these should be treated aggressively prior to the definitive management, especially in those with secondary adrenal insufficiency, myxedema coma, or thyroid storm. In conclusion, pituitary tumors can present differently depending on the underlying pathology. Hence, it is important for clinicians to take a thorough history and examination. Investigations play a crucial role in diagnosis and the choice of investigation depends on the clinical representation of the patient. Similarly, treatment of pituitary tumors differ depending on the cause, but in general, we use medication, surgery, transphenoidal hypophysectomy, radiation, and wait-and-see approach. Thank you for listening this week and stay tuned for our next episode. Please do follow us on our Aberdeen University Endocrinology Society Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Please like and share this podcast with all your friends and colleagues. If you have any requests for future podcasts, please let us know. Thank you!